Bill Stilley was a Navy brat who somehow ended up in the Marine Corps. After his service there, he shifted into business and finance across a bunch of industries, and he eventually found his way to life sciences. As CEO of Adial Pharmaceuticals, he's leading the development of a genetically targeted therapeutic agent for alcohol use disorder. Adial is currently completing a phase three trial to determine whether its oral medication can reduce overall alcohol use and the number of heavy drinking days. If that works, Adial has products in the pipeline for other addictions and a broader set of programs starting with asthma and pain. When he's not at work at Adial, Bill's reading about Genghis Khan and about negotiation strategy. I'm your host, David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group. Enjoy the show. Well, Bill Stilley, CEO of Adial Pharmaceuticals, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Yeah, David, thank you. Really a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about uh, A-Dial a little bit later on, but I want to start with how you got to that uh, spot, and, and we'll take it from the, from the early stages and ask, uh, you know, what was your childhood like and any childhood influences that you know, sort of still stick with you and inform your everyday? Yeah. Go, going way back to the beginning, I guess. Um, so I was a, a Navy brat. I grew up in uh, Texas, California, Taiwan, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and finished up high school in Virginia Beach. Uh, so really um, moved, moved around quite a bit, uh, went, went to school at University of Virginia, ran off into the Marine Corps for a number of years, and then went back and got my MBA. And so uh, since then, I've really been in the entrepreneurial world. And for the past two decades plus, which I, I hate to remember how long it's yeah. been, sometimes, uh, I've been, been in the biotech space. Well, time flies when you're having fun. But I have to ask, and I don't come from a military family, but how does... How does a Navy brat get into the Marine Corps? And is that considered like a step up, down, sideways, or like you know you might as well be fighting with the with the Soviet Union or something? Yeah, we'll say we'll say there was a conversation with my father. You know, he was career military, uh, career Navy, uh, but in the end, you know, he was just excited that I was, yeah. I was serving. Um, but I actually had a Navy scholarship, did the whole time. Uh, and I just say along the way, I got exposed to the Marines and the Marines really impressed me. So I was, you know, pretty much just about qualified to drive a ship, did all the Navy stuff, uh, and got exposed to the Marines in my last year, last semester, I applied to the Marines for the, uh, for the scholarship Won it, they paid the Navy back and I ended up going to the Marines. And actually, because I did that, I didn't get uh, commissioned with all of my you know, uh, peers at the time. And I had to go to the Marine training over the summer. Uh, and you know, finished up, and I think it was. It was other, I like to say, other than asking my wife to marry me, uh, one of the best decisions I have made in my life. And you know, I have to say that first one. Yes, uh, you better say it. Yeah, be careful. Uh, excellent. So, I mean, you were in the Marine Corps during a, uh, a busy time in the early '90s. What you know, what were you, what were you doing there? Right. So I came in right before the first Gulf War. So I did all the training and I ended up the, the war ended so quickly. I, I was supposed to go and it you know, just never did that. Um, I served uh, in a battalion, you know, an infantry battalion. So I was an infantry officer, a platoon commander and did a tour over into the Orient, uh, Korea and, and Japan. And then the second time I went and was over in the Middle East and was in Somalia on two occasions. Great. Well, anyway, busy times, and uh, they've been busy. You know, it had been quiet times up until then, and I guess it's been busy times since, more or less. So, 
Uh, well, you had a gap. You had a gap, uh, you know, between the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War, and right. I'd say you, know, you did have the Somalia thing. And, and if you've, um, you know, people always ask me like, what happened with there? If you've ever seen that movie Black Hawk Down, yeah. At the beginning, it says ten days ago the Marines left. That was my unit. Got it. Got it. Okay. So then that that's then the action started in that uh, in that way. Well, that should have prepared you pretty well for uh, you know career in business. And you know you mentioned you've been doing. Um, life sciences for the last couple decades. But before that, I saw you, you had started a company, I think, called Consolidated Friction, which I love that, the term, because I always tell people, you know, without friction, there's no traction. But uh, I don't know right. whether that's how you saw it in Consolidated Friction. What, what was that? It seemed like it uh, happened pretty fast, and you had some, you know, some early successes before wandering over onto the life sciences uh, end of the spectrum. Yeah, right. So, so friction, it, it might sound like it's something, uh, you know, uh, more, more uh, grandiose, but it's actually, there's material called friction material, which is also known as brake pads or clutch facings. Yeah. So what the idea was is that the uh, friction material for in industries, like, you know, paper mills have these massive clutch facings, uh, you know, they're a foot thick and these brake pads that are huge. And there's an industry that services those. So I thought there were some inefficiencies in that, the way that was done. And by putting together a few companies, you could create better efficiencies and have a better business. And so lined up some acquisitions and then sold that uh, company to a, a leveraged buyout firm out of North Carolina about two years out of school. Well, that's a good way to get, get started. Now, how did you move over into life sciences? Was it just that you were in a variety of sectors and then that one started to appeal to you or did you have a particular uh, reason for moving in that direction? Well, I'd say I was really finance focused. And if you look at that first business, you know, it was, it was transact. So my background is really transactions. It's just kind of doing deals and finance. And I honestly, what happened was uh, after I'd finished one, one, uh, Endeavor, I got recruited to be the CFO of a biotech company. And I really didn't know the first thing about uh, life sciences or pharmaceuticals, but I knew finance. So I came in and uh, over time, and I'd say this is, you know, when you talk about the Marines, uh, you really just do what needs to get done. And over time, it just seemed like every time somebody raised their hand and said, or, or when they looked around and said, hey, we need to do this, there's nobody qualified, you know, I ended up doing it. And pretty soon I had run clinical trials. I had been in charge of uh, running you know, chemistry program, uh, had, had uh, run manufacturing for a drug that was going to be launching and really got kind of a good spread of what goes on in clinical development, had been in front of the FDA a number of times, you know, I made presentations. And so it, I'd say a pretty much well-rounded pharmaceutical person at this point, particularly related to developing drugs and getting them ready for, uh, for you know, going to market. So we'll, we'll talk about uh, A-Dial and the specific approach, but I, I want to step back a little bit and talk about uh, alcohol use disorder. You know, what, what is that, first of all? So alcohol use disorder basically means somebody has a problem in their life that alcohol is creating significant harm. And there's actually in what's called the DSM-5, which is the Mental Health Disorder Manual, there's criteria that you go through, and if a doctor is going to do an evaluation, they would, could categorize you into to mild a person's into mild, moderate, and severe alcohol use disorder. And yeah, I'd say in the past, the term alcoholic has been thrown around. It, it, st it still is uh, in the medical community moving away from that and trying to not label as much as, as look at it as a disorder. I noted uh, even before the pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic, that um, alcohol plays a pretty central role 
uh, in society and maybe even increasing despite, um, you know, there's some other things that may cause harm like, uh, let's say, tobacco that's been, you know, on the, on the decline. But somehow alcohol has become more, more popular in some ways. I remember before the pandemic reading some articles maybe in the Wall Street Journal about how, you know, different stores were offering, you know, cocktails while you go grocery shopping and, and different things uh, like that. And then, um, you know, as companies are trying to bring people back to the office, I don't want to say after the pandemic or at this stage in the pandemic, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there was an article, again, maybe in the Wall Street Journal where they're talking about a company that was building out offices and they said the majority of companies were asking for a bar and there's basically a lot of alcohol flowing and as, as a way to bring people back into the office. I don't know how that intersects with alcohol use disorder, but I can't imagine it's positive. Yeah, so I, I mean, first of all, I hadn't heard the one about uh, uh, companies trying to put bars in their offices. Yeah. But, um, you know, you, like you mentioned, you have certain, we'll say, vices which are socially acceptable. Smoking had been, it's really not be, now not so much, and so it's really on the downgrade. But alcohol continues to be. And I also have to say, you know, during the pandemic, um, it's been amazing what's happened. If you had asked me, you know, two and a half, three years ago, what would happen if you shut down all the bars, if you shut down all the parties, you know, what would happen to alcohol? You know, I would have told you, hey, go ahead and short the alcohol stocks. Yeah. This is going to be, you know, be a problem for them. And what we've seen is actually the opposite, where drinking has increased, you know, or I should say the alcohol sales have increased and drinking has increased, despite the fact that the social situations haven't been as available. And what that also tells you is it's most likely that the kind of harmful types of drinking are now more prevalent. You know, you're not just going out and having a couple of drinks with friends, going home and it's really, you know, is more of a social thing. It was just an enabler of, of, of social activity. Now it's drinking for drinking's sake. And, and um, you know, when you start getting into what they call heavy drinking, which is getting above a threshold of about four for a woman, five for a male, you really start to create a lot of damage in your life, um, both doing, I'll say, the drunk, stupid things. Uh, that's about when th that starts to happen. But also your blood levels get high and you start getting tissue uptake. It causes over 200 diseases, you know, cancers. And yeah, so this is a, a, a huge problem that has gotten a lot worse. I mean, th think about this. This is such a big problem that the United States actually changed its constitution to try to fix it. And it wasn't that the problem got better. It was that that prohibition didn't work. And so they reversed it. And, you know, we've been going along with it without having that much success. And it's just gotten a lot worse. Yeah, I guess when a company is going to, to make a pitch and you talk about, like, how big the market is and how sort of fundamental and, and long-lasting uh, the issues are, there aren't that many that can cite that there was, you know, an amendment to the Constitution that was proposed, passed, put into effect, and then... Uh, uh, repealed and say, well, we, we have something as fundamental as that. So uh, I know there was a uh, there was a bar in, in D.C. when I was growing up called the you know 21st Amendment or whatever. So, um, right. But uh, no, that sounds that sounds like a very good basis to have a have a company. Now you have a lead product. I think it's uh, AD04, and it's described as a genetically targeted therapeutic agent for treatment of alcohol use disorder. What what does it mean that it's a genetically targeted agent? Right, so it's long been known that alcohol addiction has a genetic component. I mean, we, we know for a fact people handle and process alcohol differently based on their genetics. And what we believe is that we have identified a group of people that have a problem with alcohol that can be modulated or you know, reduced 
if you can block one of their receptors. And you can identify those patients with a simple genetic test. So you take blood, send it off to a lab. A few days later, you get the results that you're genetically of the group that would be expected to be helped. And by the way, that'd be about, a, so far our experiences, that's about a third of the people with the problem. And by then taking those patients, giving them our medication, we believe, and you know, we're trying to prove that and demonstrate it in, uh, in more clinical trials at the moment. We're going through the, that whole process. Uh, we believe it reduces their craving for alcohol to help them reduce or eliminate their drinking. So if you have, uh, say, about a third of the group that you're, that you're looking at, could be, their drinking could be explained, their alcohol use disorder could be explained with this. Do, do you believe that um, you've got a sort of a subset of those, that that one-third is a subset of those who have the genetic predisposition, uh, or that that's the whole, the whole group? I mean, how, how do you think about the spectrum? Yeah, so, so there's a predisposition for alcohol, and then there's a predisposition for a particular treatment. And clearly, we, you know, for a third, we don't have the answer for everybody that, that has it. And I'd say what you, I'd say it's fairly clear about alcohol use disorder and problems with alcohol is that it's multifactorial. I mean, there's going to be some genetic component. There's going to be environmental component. And even on the genetic side, you know, there's going to be probably a number of different genetics. I mean, Asians have something that's often referred to as Asian flush where they handle alcohol a little differently. They get vasodilate and they get, they get red faced. Uh, it feels, you know, doesn't feel so good. Um, you have people that have a lightweight gene where they drink just a small amount of alcohol and get kind of giddy drunk even though they don't have the, the high blood levels. Um, and so with, with this difference in genetic makeup, uh, we, we don't necessarily, I, I would say the claim we can't make is that if you have our genetics, the genetics we're identifying that you're going to be more likely to have an alcohol problem. What we, the claim we're trying to prove is that if you have those genetics and you have an alcohol problem, we think we can help you. Okay. So let's say for that subset that you're, you're working on, which sounds like you can identify with the genetic test plus those, you know, that have the, the diagnosis. What is different about uh, the product that you are developing versus other uh, products that are either on the market or in development? Yeah, well, one of the problems with, with alcohol use disorder and the treatment of it is that all the treatments out there today, and I, I say it can only be characterized by one word in my mind, and that word is extreme. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, first-line therapy is actually raise your hand, declare to the world, dramatic life makeover, usually give up friends, often have to disassociate from family, and you know, even groups like AA will tell you and by the way, I'm, I'm a fan of AA. For those that it works, it's great. Those are courageous people that are able to step up and, and, and do what they need to do to get their life in order. But the vast majority of people are not successful. But they will even tell you, you likely will not be successful at our treatment unless you've hit, and it's, you know, unless you've hit, and it's a term called rock bottom. Yeah. Basically means your life has been destroyed. So the only people willing to tolerate that extreme treatment are those that have had their life destroyed. And then on the pharmacologic side, which means you know medicines, uh, you have a drug out there called antabuse. If you take it and then drink, you get violently ill, throw up all over the place. It's so bad it can be fatal. I mean, that's in my mind the definition of extreme, right? Yeah. And then the market leader is an 18-gauge needle, both sides of your backside, uh, known as one of the most painful injections you can get. You go in every month for that, and then it has a number of side effects, uh, which you know really people aren't too excited about having, you know, such as lethargy and, and, uh, and some GI effects. And so that's your options today. 
Well, that's it's a pretty, pretty good it's group to be competing yeah. against, I guess. You know, starting with the, I don't know, which which is more scary, your life going to rock bottom or being hit with this 18-gauge needle every month. Yeah, well, that's it. People, you know, it's people often don't go back, you know, after they've done it for a few times. Yeah. So what we have, we believe, is a simple, easy-to-use pill with limited side effects that should help people reduce their craving, right, so that they can get control and reduce their drinking. And in the, the 283 patient study that we did so far, patients that were on drug of the right genotype had an almost 50% reduction in how often they drank. And when they drank, they had an almost 60% reduction in how much they drank. So they picked up the bottle less often. When they picked it up, they could put it back down. Yeah, you're using a couple of interesting uh, words there, uh, reduce and control, that are, are different from you know, some of these other 12-step uh, programs and so on, where it's not really about reducing and the idea about being able to c control as opposed to being completely abstinent is sort of put out there as a, just sort of a false uh, belief that you, can, that you can do that. But it sounds like you're going down a different direction. And I don't know whether that's because philosophically you believe that's the right um, direction or that's what, in fact, uh, addressing this genetic issue will, will deal with or just because when you're doing a clinical trial, it's hard to go you don't have your proof point be so high as uh, you know completely stopping uh, use of alcohol. Well, I would say you know uh, first of all, if you can eliminate alcohol from your life, then that's going to reduce and that's going to you know eliminate the most of the harm for alcohol. the The problem is the numbers are somewhere between eighty five and ninety eight percent of people that try to eliminate alcohol are unsuccessful. You know, I, I actually have an advisor who is an AA you know, devotee, has been doing it for 25 years, has worked for him. And he said, Bill, I'm an advisor in helping you because the other 98% of the people need some help too. Yeah. And, and so, you know, yes, will that work? Absolutely, if you can do it. But a lot of people can't. So, all right, we've tried and we're, we've tried to be perfect. But what if you can't be perfect? Is better, better? And I would say yes. And not only that, if you can reduce those heavy drinking days, that has now been demonstrated in trials and studies outside of our hands, that that is really meaningful to health. You know, you think about a, a guy, for instance, where you talk about that threshold, four for a woman, five for, for a guy. You think about a guy, he has one, two, three, four drinks in a day. Yes, you should not get behind the wheel after four drinks, but is that day really going to cause a lot of harm in your life? You know, are you going to be missing work? Are you going to be getting in fights? Like I said, doing the drunk, stupid things. Not only that, or your blood level is going to get so high. You know, breast, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, a lot of other problems are caused, you know, or can contribute to the cause through alcohol. And if your blood levels don't get high, your liver can clear it out quickly enough that it doesn't do a lot of damage. So if you can get people below those thresholds, that can be, that can be helpful. And I'd say there's even data that it's almost a linear correlation between the number of heavy drinking days you have in a month as, you know, as a, and bad outcomes. So if you can reduce those heavy drinking days, you can reduce bad outcomes. And in the end, that's, that's our goal, right? Our goal is to let people live the life they want to live, not you know, uh, have all the harm that alcohol causes in it. It sounds like a very worthy approach and that you're actually fairly far along now in the, in the phase three clinical trial. So I wish you the, uh, the best uh, on that. And it seems as though that is plenty to build a company on, you know, given the prevalence of uh, alcohol use disorder and the percentage of people that seem to be affected by this, uh, you know, genetic issue that, uh, that you can target. 
But above and beyond that, are there any other indications uh, where this particular therapy might be useful or, or related ones that you're working on? Yeah, so we think, and, and you know, this is what they call life cycle management. As you once you get the approval, you expand out. We think this might be useful in some other addictions, uh, particularly opioid use and gambling. Actually, the, the mechanism with gambling, I, I really like. You know, the, the biological mechanism as this being a potential treatment. We have other drugs also that are earlier stage. We are working on a, a new class of non-opioid pain killers, which actually in the animal models right now. Uh, appear to be very similar in strength to opioids and uh, and then a number of programs behind that asthma diabetes cancer uh, inflammatory bowel disease and um, uh, infectious disease well that sounds like both plenty of uh, life cycle management and uh, and uh, deep broad uh, pipeline so we'll have to have another podcast if you manage to get all those things done you know on the related um, indications for your first uh, product there um, are these other addictions, I mean, do they, do they tend to sort of go together? In other words, do problem gamblers also tend to have a alcohol use disorder issues, for example? Well, so on, on that question, you really need to look at each addiction on its own. You know, so for instance, nicotine addiction through the nicotinoids receptors, um, very different. Uh, opioid use, there, there are definitely some serotonin components involved there. And actually that drug that's the, uh, the injection we talked about is approved for both alcohol and Opioid Got use, it. so there are there are some some similarities, and then with the serotonin system, because our drug is a serotonin modulator, it blocks the serotonin three receptor, which by the way works upstream a molecule called dopamine, which is known as the reward molecule. So we think we can inhibit some of that drive through the reward molecule uh, that alcohol would create, and we think that the same receptor could be uh, involved in gambling, and how that reward is driven. Good. Well, we should have a lot to watch here. When do your phase three results become available? What's your expectation of when you might be able to uh, apply for approval? Yeah, so we have actually finished the phase three trial at this point. It is in uh, 302 patients in six countries. Great. Uh, and we are now in the process of what they, you know, we call it the wrap up, which is you're doing the site inspections, doing the drug collections, making sure all the documentation's right. And, uh, and then you've cleaned the data and they have the statisticians get at it. So our expectation would be sometime before the end of June that we would have the results on this. Assume, you know, assuming, you know, let's say, they knocks it out of the park, uh, we might be able to move towards an approval that could be as early as 2023. Uh, if it's, you know, uh, depending on the exact results, the FDA might, might want to see another trial, um, then, you know, it could be a little bit longer. But, you know, in pharma world, we're actually getting pretty close to the, in the way we think about the role. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds very good. So now turning away from the career side of things and just back to the personal, uh, have you had a chance to uh, read any books recently? And is there anything that you would recommend? Ah, um, actually, you know, if you, ha if you happen to like historical fiction, I read a book, uh, it's Genghis Khan, it's a three-part series, uh, Genghis Khan by Hansa Golden Love love that that book and, uh, and if you want to go on the negotiating side um, there's a, a great book I read not long ago called never meet in the middle great okay those both sound like uh, good recommendations uh, to to have so uh, Bill Stilley CEO of a dial pharmaceuticals I want to say thank you very much for joining me today on the health biz podcast all right thank you David You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare, business, and policy. If you like what you hear, 
go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.